Hey there, welcome to this episode of Linguistics with Laura, a new podcast I've created to shower you with all the fundamental components of language that I find truly captivating. I hope you enjoyed my last episode on what linguistics is and how language is really special, and I hope you're ready for more because today I thought we'd dive into a specific branch of linguistics called morphology. In essence, morphology refers to the structure and makeup of a word and what makes a word a word with its unique and practical meaning. So if you think about sort of the chemical makeup of a physical object and all the elements that combine and derive a new substance out of those chemical combinations, that's kind of a similar process to the way that morphology works. What we do with morphology is break down those chemical elements, if you will, that make up the word you're examining. So this is often done with tree diagrams that start with what linguists call the root of a word. Lots of coniferous parallelism here, and we could even break apart the structure of a word like coniferous, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So a root in linguistics is a word or a word part that can form the basis of new words through the addition of what are called affixes. An affix is an umbrella term for a morpheme, or more scientifically put, a word chunk, that attaches to a root to form a new word. In English, we use four different types of affixes. First, there's the infix, and this one we use pretty rarely. Anytime you're trying to emphasize how unbelievable something is, you might say a sentence like, wow, that's unfreaking believable, or maybe a different F word. The freaking in this sentence can be considered an infix because it is, well, fixed in the middle of the word unbelievable. The second type of affix is the circumfix. This type of affix is also sort of rare, but maybe not quite as rare as the infix. An example of a circumfix would be the word enlighten, because you add the morpheme n to both the beginning and, in this particular case, the end of the root word light. This also occurs in the word embolden, where we attach the m morpheme to the beginning of the root word bold and the morpheme n to the end of the word. The third type of affix is the prefix. This one you probably have heard of before as it is much more common than an infix or a circumfix. If you don't know what a prefix is, you can probably infer what it might be because of the morpheme pre meaning before. Thus, a prefix occurs at the beginning of a root word. An example can be seen in the word unhappy. The un is the prefix that attaches to the root morpheme happy and thus makes it the opposite of happy. Finally, the last type of affix is the suffix. This, along with the prefix, is quite common in English. So we've already covered affixes that go in between a word, around a word, and in front of a word, so you can probably deduce what a suffix does if you don't already know what it means. So a suffix attaches to the end of a word. An example of this can be seen in the word kindness, where the suffix ness attaches to the root word kind. So now you have the idea of what different types of affixes look like. So now I want to talk a little bit more about morphemes. As I said before, a morpheme is the smallest unit of meaning that can be used to form new words, kind of like little Lego pieces that can get stuck together and eventually form huge Lego cities and hopefully not cause you incredible pain when you step on them. But oftentimes, this morpheme is what's called a free morpheme. So this means that the morpheme can exist independently on its own as an individual word. Because it's a morpheme, however, it can't be broken down any further into meaningful units. Examples of this would be the word salad, angry, happy, cucumber, water, and there's a whole lot more. 
You might think, well, hey, cucumber is a long word. Can it be broken down into smaller pieces? Well, yes, I suppose it can be broken down into pieces, but none of those pieces will have any English meaning behind them. So if you break off the syllable Q spelled C-U, that doesn't mean anything. Well, you might think, isn't Q a word for a line or some type of signal? Yes, but those have nothing to do with a cucumber, and they are also spelled very differently. Though most branches of linguistics focus on sound over spelling, aka orthography, morphology focuses a lot on spelling to understand how words are formed in a visual way. But anyway, because the first syllable Q means nothing about cucumbers on its own, it can't be considered a word. Because of this, cucumber is one single free morpheme. It can stand on its own as a word, but it can't be broken down any further into a unit of meaning. Where morphology really gets fun is when a free morpheme is combined with what are called bound morphemes. You might be able to guess what this is, uh, but a bound morpheme is sort of like what it sounds. It's the opposite of a free morpheme in that it cannot exist on its own as a word. It's kind of like a parasite in the way that it has to live off of and attach itself to a free morpheme. Although that analogy only half works because the free morpheme doesn't get sick from having a bound morpheme attached to it. So examples of a bound morpheme include ness, which takes an adjective like happy and turns it into a noun, happiness. Another example would be the prefix re, meaning to do something again. So restart, redo, reread, regroup, you get the idea. Re on its own can't be used as a word, but when you combine it with other verbs, you get to derive a new word with a new meaning. While there is the dichotomy of free versus bound morphemes in the realm of morphology, there's also another sort of dichotomy of different types of morphemes. The first is what's called the derivational morpheme. So this type of morpheme changes the overall meaning of a word as well as its syntactic category, which signifies if a word is a noun, verb, adjective, etc. So let's take a word like boyish. The root or free morpheme in here is the word boy, which is a noun. It gives the word boyish the bulk of its meaning. But when we add ish, a bound morpheme, to the word boy, we get an adjective meaning something that's childlike, and thus we've made use of a derivational morpheme. So what's on the other side of this dichotomy? Well, that would be the inflectional morpheme. This type of morpheme never changes the syntactic class of a word and possesses only a grammatical function rather than a lexical function. Examples of this would be the plural s signifying more than one. Interestingly, a plain s is another type of inflectional morpheme too. Have you ever noticed how in English most of our verbs don't really get conjugated like they do in other languages? For example, when you use the verb to eat, you say I eat, you eat, she eats, we eat, and they eat. Every form of the verb eat is just eat, except for the third person singular, where you add an s, or in some cases an es, like in the word touches. This s does not change the overall meaning of the word at all, and only functions as a grammatical morpheme, thus linguists deem it as inflectional. Other examples of inflectional morphemes in English would be the ing at the end of verbs in the present progressive tense, or the ed at the end of verbs in the past tense. As a whole, inflectional morphemes present little to no meaning change, so I guess you could make a case that defining a morpheme as the smallest unit of meaning is slightly problematic when it comes to inflectional morphemes. Now I want to move back to roots for a little bit. Where it gets a bit complicated and confusing in morphology is when it comes to this thing called the bound root. A bound root cannot occur as an independent word, yet still carries the bulk of the meaning when it's combined with other morphemes. 
I know, seems confusing and honestly, it kind of is. Examples of this lie in words like receive, where the bound morpheme re is combined with the bound root sieve. Other examples include tain as in obtain and detain, or crete as in concrete and excrete, or cyst as in insist and assist and resist, and there's many more. It's possible that these roots were once free morphemes and root words on their own, but sort of fell out of use unless they were able to attach to some other bound morpheme. In my opinion, bound roots are one of the more odd components of morphology. Continuing with our discussion of word and word chunk combinations, you might have heard of a compound before, and in a way it's kind of the opposite of a word that contains a bound root. Instead of having two bound morphemes that combine to make one whole word, what linguistics deem a compound word is when two free morphemes are combined. Examples include snapshot, breakfast, sunflower, and makeup. Compound words can also be two different words, like hairdryer or ice cream. And you might think, well, no, those are two different words, and yes, you're right, but we think of a hairdryer as a separate and distinct entity, different simply than just hair or a dryer. Similarly, we think of ice cream as its own individual delicious treat, different from what we think of when we talk about ice or cream. Thus, ice cream is sort of one word, even though it's not, and it's spelled with two. What linguists call the head of the compound is what determines its broad meaning and grammatical or syntactic category. In English, this is pretty much the final part of the word, since that determines what type of word it is, so like in the example snapshot. Similar to compounds is something called a blend. This doesn't occur that often in English, but has a couple distinct examples, the most common probably being the fusion of the most important meal of the day and lunch, aka brunch. Blends, as you can tell, are words that get squished together and lose some of their individual components in the process. Thus, breakfast plus lunch becomes brunch. This also happens when combining the words smoke and fog into the word smog. Finally, we're going to talk about a type of word that's sort of an oops in the world of linguistics, a backformation. So this is what happens when new words enter a language because of a sort of incorrect morphological analysis. Though I sort of have a problem with calling it incorrect because shifts and changes in language are a very natural part of language development. But a backformation stems from removing actual or supposed affixes. A backformation is when a shorter word forms from a longer word, in essence, or I should say in back form. Examples of this can be found in words like edit, which comes from the original word editor, bartend coming from bartender, or funk coming from funky. There's a whole list of words that have formed in back formations that you can find by doing some quick Google or Wikipedia research. So how do we make sense of all these word combinations and units and morphemes and roots? Well, we continue with the analogy of the tree by making morphological tree diagrams. Diagrams are really only necessary when a word is morphologically complex or has more than one morpheme. A really fascinating tree diagram could be created from the word characteristically, but if you were to make a tree diagram for a word like book, well, the diagram would just be one stem with the free morpheme book. So to start, you need a word with more than one morpheme. Then the next step in making a tree diagram is to split a word up into all of its morphemes. After doing this, you'll need to recognize what the free morpheme of the word is, and once you do this, you have your tree diagram base. Now, unlike other tree diagrams you may have made in middle school math class, this tree diagram starts from the bottom, or the root, 
which is much more accurate, so morphology one, middle school math class, zero. It really just hammers home this tree analogy once again. So you start with a free morpheme at the base, but what comes next? Well, let's take a word like unbelievable again. You can probably guess what the root of this word is, and that would be believe. But what do we do next when we have two morphemes on either side of this root? Well, the key here is to take away one of those morphemes and see if you still have a word. So let's take away the able suffix that turns the verb believe into an adjective. Then we're left with unbelieve, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think that's a word. Believable, on the other hand, is a word, so we know that able comes next. In this case, we add a branch or stem above the root believe and write able, and we also label this as an adjective because it has now transformed. Then, from our new derived word, we can add the other derivational morpheme that is a part of this word, and that of course would be un. So we create yet another branch that stems from believable, and thus we form our final complete word, unbelievable, which is also an adjective, but an adjective that is the opposite from our first adjective. It derives a new meaning. Sometimes we don't need to do all of this analysis if we can just tell the difference between an inflectional and derivational morpheme. Inflectional always follows derivational, which if you think about it, sort of makes sense. First we form our new word in its new exciting syntactic category with its potentially new meaning. Then we add our more boring basic grammatical morphemes, the inflectional. So let's take a word like glorifying. We take our root word and free morpheme glory here, which is a noun, then we add our if I, which transforms glory into the verb glorify. Then finally, to fit the grammatical setting and put our verb in the present progressive tense, we add our ing at the end. So we get glory at the bottom of the tree, then glorify, and finally glorifying. It isn't always this simple though. Morphology can get pretty ambiguous at times. You might even have to prepare yourself for another dress debate, but this time in the realm of linguistics. Take the word unbuttonable. What exactly does this word mean to you? Without doing too much analysis, stop and think for a second. Okay, now you've had your second. Does it mean that something is unable to be buttoned because it is unbuttonable? Or does it mean something that can be unbuttoned and thus is unbuttonable? I would say you can make a very solid argument for both. So let's think about how we would diagram this ambiguity. Because both morphemes are derivational and each bound morpheme that we add creates a new independent word, we can diagram this word in two different ways that each represent the ambiguous meanings. First, let's take a look at the tree diagram for when the word means something that is unable to be buttoned. The first part is pretty easy. We start with the root word button. If we add able to the word button, we get buttonable, an adjective meaning able to be buttoned. Makes sense. But if we add the prefix un to buttonable, we negate the ability of whatever object or clothing item we're talking about to be the opposite of what it is, thus making the object not able to be buttoned. On the flip side, if we add un to our root word button, we get the verb unbutton. So we've already used our negative un morpheme, and in this case we could use it to describe what you do when you take off your day clothes and change into your pajamas at night, or maybe when you have a particularly successful date with someone. So finally, we add our suffix able, describing something that is competent at whatever it is that it's trying to do, and thus we get the word unbuttonable, or something that is able to be unbuttoned. And here lies the unique phenomena and morphology of ambiguous word meanings. If you can, try to think of some other words that can be morphologically or lexically ambiguous, although I will say this is a bit easier said than done.
Well, morphology can get complicated and messy at times, especially with all of its technical jargon and such, I hope this episode gave you a solid overview of all the fundamental components that make up this branch of linguistics. I, for one, find it incredibly intriguing. Hopefully you find it pretty interesting as well. Tune in next time where we'll answer some fascinating questions about how language influences thought, how thought influences language, and all of the murky gray areas in between. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.